0: Welcome to another episode of the Gay Bar kind of Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and today's segment is about an iconic Los Angeles nightclub called Studio One. Our guests will be Lloyd Coleman and Gary Steinberg, who both worked at Studio One and are both producers. Of a brand new movie coming out called Studio One Forever. Before we meet Lloyd and Gary, let's take a look at a promo clip for the movie Studio One Forever. Studio Ah! Hi, I'm
1: Felipe Rose. I am one of the original village people. The Native American from 1977 to 2017. And I'm happy to be here at Studio One Forever.
0: So welcome to the show, Lloyd and Gary. Thank you. Hi,
2: Thanks, Art. Nice to be here.
0: You're welcome. It's, it's nice to have you here. Um, I understand that you both have some memories of one of the most iconic bars in, uh, in West Hollywood.
2: So, uh, Lloyd, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background with Studio One? Okay. Uh, first, I was a patron uh, in the late 70s. I used to I lived in Phoenix at the time but I would sneak over to the West Coast and uh and visit places like Studio 1. I mean it it actually became the sole purpose for going to LA for a weekend was to experience Studio 1 and also the other nightlife of LA. But uh I started going in the 70s and then in the early 80s uh Gary and I had uh, formed a partnership of sorts And we pitched an idea to the club owner, Studio One, and we found ourselves working there for the remainder of the 80s. Studio One became our daily life uh, at the Backlot Theater, but had a lot to do with Studio One as well. We did a lot to promote the club and to do uh, anything to do with entertainment at Studio One in in that time period. We were either a part of or we were... A part of it, in some way or fashion, with with Scott Forbes, the owner. So it was a great time for both Gary and I. And
0: what was the appeal of Studio One to a guy from Phoenix that just felt the the need to absolutely go to to Los Angeles for that experience?
2: Well, my job at the time, I worked for the airlines, and so I could get on an airplane at no cost to me. Uh, it was one of my perks was that I had free <laughs> air travel, and it was a different kind of experience for somebody just coming out. I could also kind of remain in the closet at the time. Cause I was very afraid of coming out. I was a Mormon boy and uh, I, I had a lot of conflict with that in the seventies. So getting away to Los Angeles is the escape. And then the ultimate escape in Los Angeles to me was going up the stairs to studio one and, being in this place where you know it was it was a heaven kind of yeah, for me mm-hmm. it was uh, a place to go be the person and live my truth that I didn't feel like I could quite live at the time in Phoenix and it was easy to get to back in the day night like I say with a free airline ticket uh, didn't really need a hotel room <laughs> it was the place where you'd meet a lot of people and end up with a nice place to stay it was it was wonderful And Gary, what was your story with Studio One?
1: Well, I do remember counting down the days, 1977 until I would be 21 so I could finally go into studio. Before that, I was going into the Odyssey. Uh, Other side and the sugar shack in Los Angeles where the underage also known as chicken bars, (laughs) Uh, actually even worked at all of them. (laughs) But I I, I remember counting down the days to uh, be able to go up those stairs in the Studio One, Uh, in my eyes, a giant candy store.
0: And what was the physical facility like to you when you first saw Studio One? what What did that do to your head?
1: Oh my god it was it was decadent. it was sexy. it was it was everything that I like I said it was a candy store and the whole walking into that building, uh, I remember my heart pounding going up and up those stairs. I remember that sense of I mean there was no there was no uh, online hooking up then that's you know you spend a couple hours basically getting ready to go and that's where I might be meeting the next love of my life hopefully and uh that was it was that anticipation feeling walking in there walking in there
0: now during the course of my research a lot of people have mentioned studio one as kind of the studio 54 slash limelight of the west coast um what is your feeling about that, Gary? Did that, Does that sum it up or?
1: Well, Studio One was first. Uh, Studio 54 was actually conceived because of Studio One. And I, I never went to Studio 54 until the 1982, 83. So, uh, and at that point, that was a little even bit, a little bit past the, the prime of Studio 54, I believe. Um, and my sense was th- that it was very different. Studio One, uh, as opposed to Studio Fifty Four, Studio One was gay. Studio Fifty Four was very mixed—straight, celebrity—and uh, Studio One was a gay venue.
2: And Lloyd, what, what was your experience with uh,
0: with that concept?
2: Well, I traveled like. A- Back in the day, I was in the travel industry. I traveled a lot to New York. And so I got to see 54, Limelight, The Saint, Club USA. I mean, even through the, all of the 80s, I experienced a lot of the New York nightlife. But there was nothing in New York like Studio One. Studio 54, and there was nothing like Studio 54 anywhere else either. They both had their own identities. But like Gary said, Studio One was a, was a man's club. Uh, four men, and everybody else was secondary. It, it was, Scott Forbes, the, the man who put Studio one, one on the map, made it that way, good, bad, or indifferent. There was a lot of controversy because there was a lot of discrimination in, in, that uh, you may or may not want to talk about at some point. But his, Scott Forbes' vision was to have a 1,000 people in the club at one time and remember, that's not just a thousand men a night, that'd be a thousand people in the club, which was like a limit. And it was a continual thousand people. So in one night there might be three thousand people going to that club. And they would be three thousand the most beautiful men you'd ever could conceive of as a as a young gay male. So uh it was fascinating. It was like Gary said, heart heart stopping. Uh, that didn't happen in New York. In New York it was all about some sort of uh either style or Vogue, or it, it all had to do with intelligentsia or or who, what celebrity might come through the door. At Studio One, it was a place for you. you know, it was our home to go up and make something happen. And I didn't experience that at any other club in, in, the, in the country. And I saw a lot of them. Studio One was unique in that, in that sense. It was was cool. it a
0: successful place for you
2: to actually meet very good friends and... Lovers, yeah. boyfriends? Actually, it was more a place to meet lifelong friends than boyfriends for me. Uh, it was, there. there's something that in all of us that when we would go to Studio One where it was a place to see and be seen, you know, as it were, a stand and model, the S M whatever you want to call it. Uh, it was a place to go and have your ego stroked or to stroke someone else's ego. But in in terms of Boyfriends, yeah, I, I, I have to admit, I I, made a couple boy, I met a couple boyfriends at Studio One, but I've met lifelong friends, and we are still friends for those of us who survived the era of the AIDS plague. Uh, we, I think for the most part, we all met at Studio One in some form or fashion. My very best friends of today, I met all at Studio One, either dancing on the dance floor, in the back lot theater, doing something. Gary. I met in I I first saw him at Studio One, but we actually met at a, at a Christmas party somewhere else. But it was because I had seen him at Studio One that I that I made sure that I- I did not know this. Yeah, it's he knows it now, but he didn't know it then. But uh, Studio One is very, very uh, impactful on all of us in that time, you know, living in Los Angeles, when I finally moved to LA. It, it was a place i go to four nights a week, at least four nights a week. So that's three quarters of my life in the evening would be at Studio One, just to be social and feel accepted, feel in a, in a safe environment. It was a lot of my life there. At that time. And
0: Gary, did you have a similar experience with POS Studio One?
2: More than anything, I felt
1: like at Studio One, uh, Lloyd just said safe. Uh, my experience with these, with these chicken bars before that, and Studio One was the first time I felt so safe. So that where I could be 100% me. And I, I hadn't experienced that before where I could uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, always, it was always about hopefully meeting someone. That was always my goal. Uh, I wanted to, my, all I ever thought about was uh, getting married and being with someone for the rest of my life and, and going in there and just, and being able to let my, when I had hair down <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 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 and flirt and smile and, and, and stare at, you know, and, and see and be seen see and be seen and look at these beautiful men right in their eyes. And
2: that was something that was so new to me. So Gary, new. what do you think also the, one of those other components was like, it was like going to a concert every, every night uh, because you know you would either have a, a live record promotion, it was in the day of disco or the disco era was really prevalent. And a lot of these people releasing disco albums would show up out of the blue, unannounced, and promote a new song like Thelma Houston or Sylvester. And the excitement was always, who's going to come in next? Who's going to be up there next? Uh, Or it might be a Playgirl centerfold or something. uh, There would be some form of, of unique entertainment in the evening you knew you were going to see something if you went Lloyd back. didn't it always feel like like, like we a were
1: seeing we were hearing new music too yeah yeah it did not feel did not have a, a a top 40 feel at all we I felt
2: like we were on setting trends every we were we were trend setters that's what it felt like today yeah. you could feel it and you knew it and you heard it and the people that would come in to promote a new uh a record or an album, a lot of record promotion, a lot of music promotion. So Gary and I also being very musically inclined and ourselves, and we ended up producing music together and later in, in as studio one, one went on. That's really was one of its best appeals to me was the music uh, every night. If you if you did nothing else, if it was, didn't turn out to be a good night to be, see and be seen, you would experience uh, a live concert. You know, and uh, with a thousand other of your newest best friends, it was just that excitement every time you would go in. It was never a dull minute in Studio One. Never a dull minute. And I've been in a lot of bars across the country that were dull minutes. I think all of us have exp- walked in and felt out of place or not quite. But Studio One was never that way. You could be, you could come in, and uh, it was a great place. I don't think it's ever been replicated ever since. I'd like to see it happen, but I'm far beyond that, I guess. When I was young, it was very exciting. It was perfect for for the age.
0: Now, Studio One predates Studio 54, and it lasted long after. Studio 54 was kind of a flash in the pan. It it was brilliant, and then it kind of crashed and burned with all the scandals going on there after a few years. Uh, How long was Studio One around?
2: It was... I believe to
1: 1993 is when it changed to uh, Access or Factory. Do you remember?
2: I think it was Access or Ultra Suede or something like no, that. No,
1: Ultra Suede was downstairs. Ultra Suede uh, was the,
0: the back lot. Okay. So that was 20 uh, years, basically.
2: It, it had a good 20-year run uh, as as Studio One. It's always had a, a secondary name, the factory, I guess, because it started as the factory and it ended up as the factory, but uh, because it is a factory building. And, it was, and
0: originally it was a factory for yeah. film, um, for a film Cameras.
2: It was the Mitchell yeah. Camera Factory and some very incredible motion picture cameras. Back in the 30s and 40s, cameras were designed for the film that they had in mind. You know, they... Uh, did gone with the wind they had to have a certain kind of camera it was it was developed by mitchell camera factory it's called panavision then for the yellow brick road or the wizard of oz a certain camera had to be uh had to give it that colorful thing that camera was developed at the mitchell camera factory so there's a lot of history to this building and uh, that predated it but it was a factory it was a, looked like a, a factory you'd see it in any town in, anywhere in the United States, a factory building and a, with a terrific dance floor. Great acoustics in a factory, by the way. <laughs> Great acoustics. And it was in the industrial part of Los Angeles, an unincorporated part of the city, which is where factories could be built. It was in between, now it's West Hollywood and Beverly Hills, but back in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, this was a just sort of an unoccupied area, except for factories or furniture, design warehouses, you know, a few big um, corporate places, but it was unincorporated as far as the city goes. So it was the perfect place to have a disco in this factory building.
0: Now, in addition to building this, and um, uh, creating this great, huge disco known as Studio One, uh, Scott Forbes also had a vision to create a separate section in the back that was referred to as the Backlot Theater. And from my understanding, uh, Backlot Theater is what really put that space on the map because of the number of celebrities that came and performed and the quality of the entertainment. Um, how did that evolve, Gary?
1: Well, that that actually started with uh, Cheetah Rivera, and it was a space that was not being utilized and bob Fosse had a heart attack and when they were working on chicago in new york and uh so cheetah rivera had nothing to do and uh i correct me if i'm incorrect if i'm wrong on this uh she was chatting with liza minnelli and and they were like well let's use it they let's see uh was the friends with uh cheetah well, help it was, me here, Lloyd.
2: It was uh, Eb and also her husband, Candor and Yeah, Candor and Ebb and uh, Jack Haley. Jack Haley, Liza Minnelli and Cheeto at the time were friends, and they were on hiatus because of Bob Fosse's heart attack. So uh, Liza suggested to Cheetah "Let's do this. Is some great music. Let's do your act." She never had done a, a cabaret act before. So they wrote a cabaret Act and they put it at the back lot. They needed a place that that could put this show on. And uh, I don't know how, I, I don't know how quite how Liza found the backlot lot uh, space, but uh, it was the best thing that ever happened to Studio One, quite frankly, because it put it on the map. It became the room for years. The back lot was the room for any kind of great show. In Los Angeles, and that's where Gary and I met, and that's what we did. We we worked into that, we worked into that room as producers. <laughs> it was great, but yeah. So we're a little biased on our on the way we'll report on the backlot, but there there were celebrities that came through the backlot.
1: You yeah, know, there was something people. about that space, and I, and it's it doesn't happen very because we worked we worked in other rooms also. the, the the ceiling was really high you could have 100 or 200 people in that room and you would have thunderous applause there was something about the energy the distance from the performer where it had an intimacy uh but the but the sound just simply worked and everyone it felt intimate and you felt you could see the. I remember seeing Jane Oliver perform in there in the seven in the late seventies before we were uh, working in there, and and you were captivated by this performer, and you felt like you were witnessing something so so super special that is, uh, and it was that that we kept going that everyone kept going back because you were seeing something and you just felt. St- so special that you were able to uh, see this incredible talent in this space. Do you agree with that, Lloyd?
2: Yeah, Art, what, what happened in the back lot actually became, um, it, it became a standard for the gay community amongst, for example, I'm gonna use this as, as an example, Roseanne Barr and uh, Rosie O'Donnell, two very successful female comics, but they were very successful with a gay audience. But it, it, in the 80s, it, there was sort of an unspoken thing. You, you had a lot of people come to Studio One to release music, whether it was disco or whether it was rock and roll. You had people come, came there to launch an act and try something out, like Cheetah came to try out a first cabaret act. Or you have uh, Barbra Streisand's sister Rosalind Kine launch uh, music there was something about having the stamp of approval of a cheering gay crowd that made the entertainer famous but at at the same time empowered all of us in the audience as gay men young gay men going like we have a little bit of power here to influence art and it was a very symbiotic relationship between the audience and studio one so there was some really fascinating vibrations going on between audience and performer and the climb to get to the back lot was part of the deal I mean you stood in line outside and you climb up these factory steps outside there's nothing like it in the country and, and you get into this room and there's still a three-story factory inside with the best sound you could possibly have and yet it would feel like Gary said the most intimate setting in the world. You'd look at the person on the stage, and you felt you could reach out and touch them from any seat in the room. It was it was just it was magic, magical. It was a great place. And then there was always the people at the bar during the whole time that just stood there, and you know you could go in and still cruise in a bar while while you're watching Jane Oliver or you're looking at the Joanne Worley on stage. <laughs> a lot of celebrities come through it was quite quite a crazy place charles nelson riley yelling in one corner and rip taylor through the other it was spectacular oh one of our we did the
1: monday nights live at the backlot show um and it was a, a, a talent night, basically. And I, I one night, Luther Vandross got up and sang. He, he, wasn't on the, he wasn't on the bill. He was in the audience, and he got up and sang. And it was one of the most magical nights ever yeah. to, to see that kind of a talent. And... I mean, and Carl Reiner performing in there, and then sitting in the front, sitting right in front, of course, was uh, Carl, her husband Carl Reiner with Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft sitting right there in the front, and they were all just dolls. I mean, they were all so sweet. It was that kind of energy. Yeah, always.
0: So as a couple of starry-eyed young guys, you know, <laughs> enamored with this fabulous club in, in West Hollywood, um, how did you evolve from there to deciding that you wanted to be part of that energy? Uh, okay. Well, well, I was,
1: I had spent many, many years pursuing an acting career and, and doing odd jobs. And uh, and I was, and that was not working for me. Um, I, I majorly love really, really great talent, but I never felt like I was one of those. Uh, and and Lloyd and I, we were going to talent nights. We were going to. There was uh, what was the place over in Santa Monica? The Horn, know, the Horn, the Horn. Yes, mm-hmm. and and that was something that was uh, that inspired me. And and when this room became available, we started just talking about it. What will we do? And. Uh, wouldn't that be really cool for us to run this, run a Monday nights live or a talent night in there. Now, Lord, I've always been the personality that I, I like to come up with all these big ideas and then, you know, and I'm, insecurity kicks in and all of a sudden, uh, and I don't do anything, but Lloyd was very, Lloyd would put his neck on the line and he would be brave enough to do it. Next thing I know, we're meeting with Scott Forbes. <laughs> and and we do it. It's because of Lloyd. I give him all that credit for having the guts to to go
2: for it. Well, uh, art how is there's a little more to that story is that uh when Gary and I met I I knew when I met Gary that Gary was gonna be the person I would be spending at least the next ten years of my life with. I fell in love with him instantly. As a person, as everything, he w- he fit it. he checked all the boxes, and one of those boxes was he inspired me. You know, he inspired me. Uh, we we really loved to go see talent. We we both wanted to find our way in the t- world of talent, as performers or whatever. We never really thought of ourselves as producers, but it kind of became clear to us at that point that this was an opportunity um where we could do things the way we wanted to if we could if we could talk our way into uh getting this room and running it our way as if right two guys that had never been in the industry other than auditioning for something we got together (laughs) i have to say something also because
1: of after uh being the person uh, as an actor, being rejected uh, over and over and over again at these interviews at uh, auditions, being on that producer side of the table, I I turned into a different person, and I found I felt very empowered, and that's when I really started enjoying that. Where people were sending us their headshots and. And it also
2: worked. Our ideas worked at the time. For whatever reason, they worked, and we had somebody that believed in us. That was Scott Forbes and the other ownership. After they saw a few things of what we could do, and we kind of went out on a limb, not knowing if we really could achieve it ourselves, it was just a perfect uh, storm if uh, in some way. Uh, but it just took a little bit of, uh, uh, maybe a little bit of, a little bit more believing in ourselves uh, at, at that moment in time we 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 got the courage to believe in ourselves and it, it took God. yeah it we said us. we could do something and we delivered it yeah at the biggest surprise to gary and i that we actually delivered it yeah. you know what's
1: going cool, I'm just remembering now is that i had all this acting training i would go to i would have to take like a musical theater workshop and learn the technique I might have not been great at doing it because of my own insecurities, but I recognized when people were good at it, mm-hmm. and and I used that uh, that skill, auditioning and is this person? Do I believe what they're saying? And do I feel something when they're singing? Just like I had learned in this uh, in this uh, one particular class I had taken for quite a few years.
0: Now. That kind of adds a little bit of extra element to the story, because you're basically talking about two people who have no experience as promoters or producers, pairing up with a guy who has no experience as a bar owner, and creating something um, iconic that has lasted for decades in the memories of people all over Los Angeles. Did you find that unusual at the time?
2: I did. Uh, but it was just sort of, I don't know, it was, I think after after we saw that we were, that all you had to do was believe in yourself, because we realized that right away, uh, that all we had to do was have the belief that this would work. And then when we saw it working, you get the uh, sense of confidence. And also knowing your surroundings. Uh, we, we, we really knew the audience because we were the audience to begin with we used to go to that open mic night and all the different shows at studio one we were the studio one audience and we were able to um we were just we, it was like i said we were able yeah getting, well, well something really excited. important to, to
1: to to get is that we, didn't, we weren't making any money yeah did this, <laughs> even with a even with a packed house, we were paying a, a three to five piece band and sound and lights. And a lot of people, a lot of people in the audience were comped because they were bringing their agents and their managers and their uh, music producers. And I mean, people would come in with a list of 20 people and, you know, and because it, we were pretty green, we were, we allowed a lot of it. So there were nights that it was packed and we lost money, but we loved every
2: second of it, every second and, and we were not paid. That's an important thing to know. For I think the whole world, or the whole world of, of the audience that used to go to the back lot used to assume that Gary and I were paid staff at Studio One, when in fact we're not. We actually produced, like you would produce any big show. That we had to, we had to go put up posters on the on the. Uh, on the telephone poles, we had to ensure that there was somebody on stage who was going to bring 10 people or more. We would, we would do all the work it took to fill up the room and pay the minimum to the bar. The bar had a minimum every night. So we made sure that the bar had a minimum so it could afford a staffing. And a lot of times Gary and I ate that expense. So we also had to have a day job. Nobody knows it. We, that's where that's where vacuum cleaners came in. <laughs> that's where vacuum cleaners came. In. We had we had a vacuum cleaner store that we repaired vacuum cleaners by day, and we put on tuxedos by night. It was it was quite something. Yeah.
0: I I, I love the
2: memory. Yeah, <laughs> and we traveled all over still, and we compared everything. We compared bar experiences and show experiences all across the country to ours, never really realizing that it was impacting to a whole generation of entertainers. I mean, there are people that were made stars out of being on the Backlot stage during our or we time, had,
1: time. Or we had people that were, uh, the one that comes to my mind is uh, Kim Criswell was was starring as Broadway. Isabella in Cats at the Schubert Theater uh, in LA in Century City. And she came in. She did our our Monday nights live at the Back Lodge. She sang "Memory" like blowing your you know, uh, blowing your mind. And then did her own uh, one night show where she brought in all the cast members and packed the house. And we had that kind of caliber of talent in there. From the uh, from, from the regular,
0: <laughs> <regular>. <laughs> So you had this great experience with. Studio One and with helping build the Backlot Theater um, performances and things of that nature and basically made a huge mark on the, the gay bar history of Los Angeles. And, of course, eventually the bar closed. And there has been a lot of talk over the years about what was going to happen with that building. Um, I know it became another nightclub. And then recently it was actually disassembled and taken down. Um, did you feel a passion about that when they were talking about destroying the building and clearing the lot for a new project? Did you, did that kind of hit your heartstrings?
1: Oh, well, with, with me, um, I, I I have to be honest, I was kind of mixed. I have a lot of memories in the building but part of I'm a realtor and part of me looked looked at the building as an antiquated old space and I, you know I, 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 after um, uh, the, after this period of my life uh, I was a publisher of Circuit Noise magazine so for 20 years uh, traveled around the world visiting all kinds of incredible venues and studio 1 uh, in Paled in comparison, and so it didn't have the, the vibe. It didn't. It wasn't high tech. It w- did not have that new modern thing. It just felt old. It just felt old. And so part of me is thinking, who cares? But when I really started thinking about it, and the more I thought about it, and really the more we got into this project, the more I saw all the historical significance of the building. So. Yeah, I'm. Uh, the losing it is losing a part of our gay
2: history.
0: And how, how was it for you, Lloyd? Uh,
2: for me, I had a different experience. I uh, there was a there was a period of time afterwards. I I knew Gary would conform to the idea that this was necessary when I first told him about a project of mine that we're, we're talking about. This has been on the books now in my head, and I say books in my head. Since about 2007, to to somehow honor the backlot and the memory of it, and Studio One, to me, Studio One is the backlot. I guess that's kind of taken for granted now after our conversation. But uh, Gary is also is very much a part of that history. So, with me personally, it took a little bit of coaxing with Gary, but it, it wasn't it wasn't long before Gary did realize that this building. And what we did at the back lot needs to be somehow preserved. And and about the same time, uh, the developers who who decided to tear down, they the people that one uh, decided to tear down the Billing Studio one, they kind of did it without letting the community know. And somehow the word got out that they were gonna be doing it. And there was a lot of outcry in the community about ha- do we do we want to let this go? I mean, how, how many landmarks are there for the LGBTQ community in the whole country? And we're talking about gay bars and we're talking, this is, gay bars are, are not just places to go get drunk. Gay bars are meeting centers for the LGBTQ community and have been from day one. So how many places are there that are iconic and that are still here the stone wall is still here but it it took a force of a lot of people to to put the stone wall as ugly as an outbuilding as it is or may be to some you know it is on the historic register well we felt i felt we had to do the same thing for studio one and there were a couple of women uh uh, a a gay couple uh, who had the same idea and it, it was uh 2009 I believe around that time we we got together and and we met and we went down to the building and we talked to different people anywhere there was a save the factory movement and there were two simultaneous save the factory movements that went on but somehow I was involved both of them Uh, and I was doing it I thought well this is the way that I can uh, resurrect our community i'm in i'm a big person on reunions family reunions school reunions i love bringing people together and we see how we all change because the people i've met all my life very special to me the people studio one backlot theater all of the performers involved i have to tell you we are still a big family those of us who survived the 80s and i mean that through the aids epidemic and, and also the performers, those who are still performing today, making movies. Some many are behind the scenes, we're still a big family. And it was important to me to preserve that family. This project that we're talking about was Studio One Forever. And we wanted to document this, either the saving of the building or how it was gonna to be torn down and how it affected the family. That's, that's what I envisioned. And like everything does, projects take on a life of their own, and uh, and history has been kind to us again because the city and the people in the city of West Hollywood decided to make sure that building was not thrown away in a development. Uh, there's all forms of preservation. Well, the thing that was approved was that the developers of this new hotel complex that was to demolish the building. Instead, they're were, they were allowed to take this factory, which was built as a prefab factory, take the building down, reposition it so it fits perfectly within the development space. It will become the ballroom and retail space for this hotel. They'll just pick the building up and move it to face another part of the boulevard. And I don't wanna say everybody's happy, but about nine-tenths of everybody was happy with that. The original building is still there, It's just been taken down now, but it will be reassembled and it will have a a new life. I always refer to the London Bridge was brought all the way from London to give it a new life in Lake Havasu. And uh, it was put together piece by piece bar a few bricks. And in this case, um, there are 12 modules of that building and 11 of them are gonna be fully restored, which is great news. It will be used again as a club it will be used as, again, as retail space. And that's kind of what it has been all of its life uh, the, since it was a factory. So the building is saved. The iconic shape of the building will be there for years to come. Uh, one of the agreements that they developers made was that they were going to have a part of the building in some fashion to be either a museum or a uh, place for the LGBT community community to tell the story of what studio one was how that will be done and achieved i don't know yet but i do know that uh nothing's changed uh, we, either with the city or with the pandemic uh stopping everything for two years It. Uh, i just spoke with the uh, people the, the development company this morning and nothing has changed it's it's on it's uh, the building is going to be reassembled once the new uh, hotel that will surround it is finished. But it's in boxes somewhere. <laughs> Can't imagine. It's, it, it's actually in a warehouse uh, and all of the pieces are being polished up, but the building will live again and there will be a club in there again.
0: I, for one, am certainly very excited about that because my whole project has been about preserving the memories of the gay bars that were so important to us as community centers, as meeting places, um, as organizing places where we could, you know, fight against political causes or whatever it was that we needed to do. And so many historians over the past decades have focused on the rallies and the riots and the activists and the bars were just kind of left out of the picture. So it's really great that the two of you along with the rest of the team, um, have come up with this idea to make a movie, a documentary showing original footage and interviews from people who were there and re- and capturing that whole feeling for all the people who were there as well as the ones who never got to experience it.
2: Thank you. Uh, Thank you. It's nice, yeah. it's nice hearing that because that's exactly how we felt about the project. When we, when we embraced doing this uh, it's, it's we're both thankful so many people have been supportive of it uh, it's, it's 100% uh, funded by donations from our community um, and I know that you hear always uh, you know, donations being asked for by a lot of things online GoFundMe projects or whatever but this has been completely 100% funded by all of us in the community um, and it's still being funded that way. Uh, it, it shows there's a great deal of us, like yourself Art and other men, LGBT uh, gay men and, and women who want this preserved and want this story told. It was a, an incredible time. And there's a, there's somebody that says, Mayor John Duran of the West Hollywood at the time, is one of the most important things he said in that movie was that they don't know what they don't know, the young people of today don't know what they don't know and you know they're of course forming their new bonds and you know gay people will always have gay bars i guess but there was there's a lot more to them or there was at least in my day um they were like you said they were information centers community centers outreach centers especially when the aids epidemic hit they became the the place to find out any information Uh, and I mean, I don't know about what city a year from, Art, but even in uh, L.A. at the time, we came together and watched Dynasty on, at Studio One. Everyone sat on the floor of Studio One. The whole disco stopped for an hour of Dynasty because, remember, it had a, gay, a couple of gay characters in TV, and that was so new on television. It stopped the community. That's the effect of Studio One um, that I have still in my mind about community is when we would all sit together and watch that show support that show dynasty and uh i think it became a thing across the country didn't other bars say have their dynasty night uh but studio one started with that studio one gate started gay disney day which is now developed uh, the people at the back lot were the art and talent that came together to form your very first rsvp cruise which is now exponentially cruises all over it's empowered gay businesses and gay people to be self-serving you know why shouldn't we be able to go on a cruise why shouldn't we be able to go to a gay hotel and not be a bathhouse etc so businesses were built because of friendships and the the, the way we the way we grew up to empower each other and the gay bars were central to that all of them and I, I that's what I love about your project is that you are you're making this possible and bringing a lot of people. They didn't have to be a celebrity or they don't have to be an entertainer or a producer, but a patron of a gay bar and tell the experience and share the experience. I know it's a lot different today. I, I'm guessing it's a lot different today. First of all, people don't drink the way they used to. You, but uh, with Ubers now, you don't have to worry about drinking and driving. But back when we were going to bars, you didn't really have to worry about drinking and driving because it, it was not the same thing today with bars and drinking and alcohol there's a, another component that we really didn't have in our face back then uh was the was the was that but um uh, i would love to see what the gay young gay people are doing right now I'd, I'd like to be able to somehow tune into that and i think maybe with your gay Bar Archives project you'll probably touch on that somewhere but um uh, Anyway, uh, that's what I loved about reading about your project art is that you're giving a voice to all of this history, but it's really one voice and showing how big that voice is, was, and will be. So thank you very much.
0: You're quite welcome. It's it's become a a labor of love, much like I'm sure Studio One Forever is for both of you. Now, Gary, when you were going to Studio One, did you know how iconic it was, or did you just kind of say, eh, this is our place locally, but. You know, I have to say
1: that, you no, know, at the time, like I said earlier, this was I was thinking about meeting somebody. I, it felt I was just charged going, and I looked forward to it. I, there were periods of time where I was there every single weekend, every weekend. And I had, not of course, I had no idea Lloyd was like spotting me there. <laughs>
2: more like, more like every night. <laughs> I find it. I find
0: this out forty years later. <laughs> he was, he was stalking you at the bar. <laughs> Basically,
2: <laughs> I noticed him for the first time I ever walked in there. And every time I, I, I say this in the film, I said, "I'm not saying I went to the bar every night, but every night I went, Gary was there, <laughs> and that's Ooh. the truth." it didn't seem so at the time <laughs> I, <guess> I
1: was.
2: <laughs> it was so it was yeah it didn't seem iconic art it was a neighborhood bar for us a very large neighborhood bar a very large one but it was what we expected and you know we had a couple in the LA area to go to and every one of them if it was a dance club they all aspired to be another studio one so they were large places oil can Harry's circus circus um, the Odyssey, they were all huge, Dis- and disco was a big deal, so um, you, they all aspired to be that. So, we kind of are all of our neighborhood bars were grand central stations, yeah. and they're all gone now, they're all gone, they're all pretty much all gone. Well, Lance Bass is, is opening up a couple of things, but he's involved with a couple, you know, last Lance Bass, um, and uh, I. Think he, I think we're going to see maybe another big venue or two re, repeat itself so, or come back to the L.A. area. I, I think so.
0: I'm certainly hoping. And if he's watching, I have been desperately trying to get Lance Bass to talk about his club and his project and have had no response. I've interviewed him before, mm-hmm. but for this project, I have heard nothing. Um, and I'm sure he's pretty busy out there working on that. But um, hopefully we'll get to include him. So while you were working on this movie project, after you kind of got it to the point of, yes, this project is going to happen, and yes, we are going to make a movie to memorialize Studio One forever. What was it like tracking down the people that were involved in the movie? Because I've noticed you've had a number of celebrity endorsements and commentaries in the clips I've seen. How did that all come about? how difficult was that to to get them energized to do it?
2: What I had mentioned before about us being family still is that um, for the most part, the people involved in this and the people being interviewed are still close friends. We're still close. uh, I mean, we get together a lot in our lives. Um, It it took a little while to find Cheetah um, or the right person to talk to Cheetah because she has gone on with her career to be... Uh, but I can honestly say, I never I never thought that we wouldn't get to, to, to uh, find the right person to get Cheetah involved. But so far, everybody that was a part of the Backlot story, Studio One Backlot story, so far, everyone that was a part of it has been fully supportive of it, that I know of anyway. Uh, I don't think anyone said, no, I don't want to ever talk about that again or be part of this.
1: Um, it I, I must things. actually say that I was I'm I was pleasantly surprised because I poo pooed this. Lloyd, for years, has come back to me and say, "Let's do a uh, back lot reunion." And my response was, "Who would you didn't care? think
2: people would be interested?" Is what was. I, I, I was like.
1: Who would care? Who who would do it? Who would care? And I was wrong. I was very wrong. Uh, and so I give Lloyd
2: credit for pushing that. <laughs> well, it was in answer to Art's question. It was the people involved with it and the celebrity; those who are celebrities. Some of them were not celebrities when we did backlot. Uh, they're all. They're all. It was not. How, it was not difficult because the project uh, made sense to everybody. It still makes sense to everybody that was involved back then. I think we all. Also feel a bit of pride having been a part of that that era, the late seventies to the early nineties was a definite. Well, it was like the pandemic was. The pandemic of today has been the number one story. AIDS was the number one story for twenty years, but there was a lot of drama, and there are a lot of people involved in the drama, and there were a lot of wonderful people who gave their name and talent to raising money and making awareness. Uh, it happened you know the government didn't come to the aid of aids at the at the beginning we all know that but with the help of people like Joan Rivers and the people uh, like her and her group of friends elizabeth taylor and her group of friends and the entertainment industry in general made aids become part of everyday american awareness mm-hmm. and that industry is what also created the backlot theater. so we were we were our center, we had some synergy there, and Ooh. and and it still it still runs through our blood today. And all the people that now have an opportunity to, to tell this story uh, are part of it. It was it was no hesitation by anybody that I've known yet so far to be a part of it. Should I say that right? <laughs> I think no hesitation. They all they all joined in, and 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 there are more coming. There's a lot more coming. We we keep adding and adding and adding to the story as we go back and we find more of the, more of it to tell. So uh, it's gonna be a very powerful documentary when it's all said and done. It, it's it's evolved over the past two years. And thankfully because of the pandemic, we, we all had to slow down and take a couple of good looks at, at what we're telling it. And there's so much more to tell and we've been able We've been given the gift of time to make everything not perfect, to make everything, to reveal the truth about every story that we're telling. And there are many stories within this story. So it's, it's been good.
0: I had the pleasure of um, interviewing Bruce Valanche for a segment a while back. Um, and I noticed he's um, featured in the trailer. Um, did you know him from the from your days at, at
2: Studio One? Yes. Bruce has had a hand in so many careers and direct hand, but he used to write for just about everybody that performed at the Backlot, whether they were a comedian or a singer, or uh, they even put on a couple of shows. uh, uh, But Bruce was the most sought after writer. He wasn't, he was on, uh, they were doing Hollywood Squares at the time. Uh, He was very big on but everybody wanted Bruce Falange. Uh we produced a lot of Gary and I through our production we actually started managing talent and we had some female comics as part of our stable of talent and all of the entertainers would uh, including Joan Rivers would buy jokes from people like Bruce Valanche he would write and conceive of the joke that the, the, the uh, entertainer would then deliver the punchline in fact the movie Punchline had a couple of stars from the back lot in it. One of them being Pam Madison, uh, somebody that we, I don't know if you ever got to see her art, but uh, what what I'm getting at with Bruce Valanche is he had a hand in shaping so many careers, making so many people successful. Um, He's a joy to be around. He's a wonderful human being. He you know we are now in a time where many people are passing of old age. you know before it was they were passing of AIDS. Now we've reached that point of our time where people are starting to pass from age, ageism or, or, or pass from things that you get from an older age and Bruce so eloquently writes about all those people. I'm, I love following him on Facebook now and not only did he yeah. uh, uh, not only
1: is he in the documentary, but he was gracious enough to. Host uh, our Back to the Backlot farewell event, the farewell event.
0: Yeah, he's an awesome, awesome guy. I was, you know, one of the most shocking things I found out about him when I was researching before my um, interview with him was to find out that he was one of the writers of Earth the Kitt's Where Is My Man, which sent, seemed so out of context for how you envision him now as this brilliant, jovial comic And it's one of the most iconic songs for my coming out years, you know, in, in Atlanta is, is that, you know, Eartha Kitt song. And it just seems he is a man of many talents.
2: Well, Eartha, he wrote Eartha's show at the backlot and uh, I bet they were at the same time, I think, but uh, Eartha Kitt came in, did a few shows there. Bruce was, Eartha was just one of the many and he he just had that talent to keep coming up with material that was, it was good. I mean, it was good, funny. Some of it highly emotional, but it wasn't just comedy that he wrote for. Um, so he, uh, he really did. It. He was a career maker, and uh, it's amazing how down to earth a person he truly is. And he's, um, I'm really glad Bruce is part of our project. Really, really glad. No! Anybody tells you that they were there in the '70s and remembers it wasn't there. Nobody says anything like quite like Bruce. Again, he'll <laughs> <laughs> get away with words, doesn't mm-hmm. he? And he'll never get old. He'll, what he has to say <laughs> never gets old. It's just as timely. And, and I don't think he's a man who repeats himself much. You know, you'll find a lot of comics and people in the comedy industry just sort of update the material with a new spin. The a man who has something to say and has new words, finds new words eloquently so, and uh, spot on. He's always spot on. He was really great with the with the farewell event at the backlot as well. So, nothing but respect for Bruce, <laughs> love and respect.
0: So, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Studio Fifty Four kind of crashed and burned after a series of um, unfortunate situations there. And there's been some talk in the media that I've read about Studio One also having a lot of controversy about being basically a club for white men. Yet several people I've interviewed and talked to online who had been there said that that was not necessarily their memory. And several of the photos I've seen of the, of the dance floor show people of color. Um, they show you know, Latinos in the in the mix. Uh, you see an occasional woman here and there. What was your reality from that time frame? My, my reality was that there is truth to that,
1: and my opinion back then. I remember this quite clearly. Was everyone else has a lot, especially uh, the straight community, has the entire world to go to. I liked that they had, at that time, I liked that they had the open-toed, no open-toed shoe policy for women. Uh, and that was that was obviously designed to keep women out because that's what every, every woman wore. I felt like I wanna have this safe space to go where I can be with my tribe. That's what it felt like. Looking back and from 2021 eyes, Yes, it feels very discriminatory now, but at the time,
2: I, I really liked it. It was uh, the man who brought us in actually to Studio One was a partner of Scott Forbes's, Ernie Carruthers, a black man, and he's he, of a lot of the pictures that you see it from Studio One of those days. If you saw a black person, it would might have been Ernie in the club, because not. And one of Gary and my best friends. Uh, over the years uh, uh, also a black man uh, who never really went to the club much Uh, black men didn't support studio one the same way they supported for example catch one which was on the other side of, of town scott had a distinct type of person in mind he also had a bathhouse called the 8709 He and his partners they owned and they tried to create this world of um, the preppy, hot, young kid. Uh, they had a look in mind. And if you didn't really meet that look, they didn't say, no, you couldn't come, but they would discourage you either by making the the, the fee too high to get in, which in those days was just a couple of dollars. Because you know, nowadays you get a $20 cover and you get nothing. But back then it was a $3 cover or a $5 cover, or you didn't get in and, or you... Uh, what i'm saying is there were a lot of roadblocks put up for for certain people to get in and it was overlooked at first but i think as time went on through the decade of the 80s i think more and more people realized hey this is this is not a good thing you know we can't we don't want to be discriminated for being gay with the aids crisis uh how can we discriminate amongst ourselves and it was still a thing about keeping women away or at bay. But then there were too many of us that had best friends. I mean, I lived with, before I met Gary, I lived with two women. They were my best friends and they were my roommates. Um, so, so, and it, it was always important to me personally to have women around. But the women that I knew would come to the bar. It pissed them off that they had to have closed shoes because at the time also the fashion was open-toed shoes or you know sandals or whatever they couldn't have that it was also a time when somebody sued the bar because they got cut with uh, a broken glass cut the woman's foot so scott forbes said okay no more open-toed shoes so he was even though he had previously said we want to limit the number of women that we come in people made open-toed shoes the the big deal but he did that because a woman sued the club because she got cut in her feet by stepping on some glass and, or glass got caught in her shoe. There was, there was a lot of growth from everyone on that topic on, and the topics of Blacks. And uh, I don't know if it was ever publicly resolved. It wasn't like today where you have a Me Too movement and you've got social media and you've got people hammering each other on Twitter every second because this was said or that was said. But there were people who did uh, activists at the time. There's always been activists. There were activists that used to protest outside the club all the time with uh, protest signs. Uh, You know, Jim Crow is alive and well at Studio One. I remember seeing that one, Um, even though I never personally felt it. And that my first invitation and my very first time to get in free was at the invitation of a black man. I never felt that, but I did see it on sometime and they were going for a look in the club owner scott forbes after you got to know him personally you realized he was going for a look
0: right Um, and i don't see that that was so out of the ordinary i mean one of the most famous things about about studio 54 for example is their exclusionary policy at the door and it wasn't necessarily about your skin color but if you didn't look like the a-list that they wanted in there you weren't getting in um, if you
2: if you weren't pressworthy. That's right. It was. You could be black, white, or, or, or green, you know, if if you were pressworthy, you got in. That was the way it was with Scott too.
0: And in, in this situation, the top this topic that's come up through my research with you know these bars around the country, a lot of them seem to have some level or other of an exclusionary policy, or I don't know, maybe it just happened that way. But I remember I came out, my first gay bar experience was in the late 70s. And I didn't think about it until the last couple of years that many of the bars I went to were predominantly clean-cut white gay men. And I don't know that they had any uh, exclusionary policy at the door. It's just the way we tended to socialize at that time. And depending on what neighborhood you lived in, what neighborhood you partied in, um you know lesbians didn't tend to show up at at the men's bars other than when you got into the disco scene a little bit and then you started to see a little bit more of a mix of of women or straight people wanting to go to these fabulous gay discos but other than that it seemed pretty rare to me to see people of color or women in a men's bar you know a gay bar
2: that's very true I, I, I think across the country at that time of the eighties, bars were, it was, well, everything, it was a bar was a place of mutual attraction. And so you ended up with country bars. You ended up with, uh, you know, I do remember back in the day, I remember going to Atlanta, uh, loving the nightlife in Atlanta, by the way, in the eighties. But uh, they would, I would hear this, oh, that's a preppy bar. Or that's a. <laughs> everything got labeled. With you had your country western, you had your 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 black folks. You had it was. I don't know if that's called tribal or it was. It, we just did that to ourselves. We just sort of narrowed the field. or Maybe the field was too big that you. You naturally narrowed it to what you were looking for. So people, were, when you go out, it's a it's a, a matter of of a mutual attraction. So the bars became places of mutual attraction just by just just because i mean that was we would all go out looking for a thing and um meeting people like us and and at the at the i guess at that period of time when a new bar would open it would sort of have to label themselves what kind of bar they were whether you were uh
1: well, it's kind of like now we uh, like grinder has filters where you can yeah filter like, filter out you
2: know the height and the weight and the ages. I still have never seen a grinder page. Honest to God, I don't I don't know what you're talking about, but I've heard people talk about. I, it. I don't know either. I've heard, and I think that's it. Um, people just um, yeah filters.
0: Well, Lloyd, it's funny that you mentioned Atlanta in the 80s, because I moved to Atlanta in 1983. Oh. Um, and I moved there because I had been visiting the weekend, um, New Year's weekend of 82, 83, and had such a fabulous time mm-hmm. at Backstreet and some of the other bars I went to. There it is. That's that the bar. <laughs> that um, my boyfriend and I decided on the spur of the moment, the day we were heading back to Nashville, that we were going to move to Atlanta. We found an apartment, I found a job, we turned on the utilities and we moved there the following weekend. And Backstreet was the bar that actually started this whole project for me because I was reminiscing with some friends about Backstreet and it kind of snowballed into remembering the other bars from Atlanta. You may remember Far Library, you said the, yep. um, the preppy white bar. Yep. It was the coolest experience. I remember walking in there and thinking, oh, my God, this is so awesome. It's clean. It's upscale. These people look like they're educated and they, you know, they press their shirts and
2: crease their pants before they go out. The lighting was perfect there. You know, like it wasn't it wasn't just a blackout. I mean, had this great lighting, uh, the great, great uh, staff. You know, all the staff was like your clients. I, I remember that place well. I think um, what you're what you're saying, Art, is also true everywhere. Is that people would literally move to a city because of a bar? I've heard that over and over in my lifetime. Oh, and I remember going the first time I walked into Backstreet uh, in Atlanta. I remember thinking to myself, "Wouldn't it be great to live here?" I remember saying that to myself, you know. Um, same with Houston. I mean, DC. Uh, you name it. Everywhere I went, I would. I, I considered moving to those cities because of the gay bar experience. I really did. that That's how important they were to us. Um, finding your mate or finding friends. It happened because of the gay bars. And when I walked in, it said, oh, there are thousands of people in here who could be my new best friend. That's, of course, visually. You're just looking at them visually. But it was all all I needed to see.
1: Yeah, and what you just said, Art, was a large part of my coming out well, before going to any gay bar, I always pictured gay people like what I saw on TV, the real flamboyant ones, the ones that are on the news. Stereotypes. They were the flamboyant with the, you know, I, and I was like, well, what? A, as soon as I went to any gay bar, which was, happened to be in uh, Santa Barbara uh, when I was in college, I saw that well these are what I considered like kind of normal well I considered myself like a normal person <laughs> uh and you know just um a guy and and I was like wow there's a lot of guys that are that are just like me that uh, so that helped me coming out
2: Atlanta was really upscale though I have to admit it's like certain cities didn't have that upscale feeling that That Atlanta had you'd go out at night these are really successful people you know in in Hollywood you see all the people who have paint on you know and I I call it paint you know they've got a star look or a mullet haircut back in the day whatever it would be it was the look but something about Atlanta that was that there was a upscale there's an honesty about how truly upscale it was. I think that's what I mean. And I said honesty. is It was very, very appealing to me, to looking for the looking for the successful person in my life. But I was happy. I, I found Gary in, in uh, LA. <laughs> He's just as successful as anybody in Atlanta. Uh, we're still great friends. That's all we are today, but we're lifelong friends. How they go to that... Uh, and that also
0: came out of Studio One. Yeah,
2: yes. Well, it it was. Yeah. It Studio One and the backlot are, are everything. I mean, Gary and my whole history. That's that's all it is. Yeah, we, we met at a Christmas party, not at Studio One, mm-hmm. but but everything that we did was for Studio One or the backlot, mm-hmm. and still today. And now we're. Now we're part of this history making project. I can't wait till it's over because this is not the end of it. Uh, this in making this studio one forever project we realize just how much there is to to still achieve with this story and and there are so many stories that are going to be born of this. I don't want to call it a spin-off because that sounds so Hollywood you know there but there are stories that are going to be Coming forward, and you'll see, is this you know the 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 studio one forever? I think is going to take forever to tell. Let's put yeah. <laughs> there's, yeah. a, there's a lot in there that ain't going to happen. There's a lot. An a <laughs> so it's it's exposed that, and I'm really glad. You know, I've got a lifetime of work ahead of me with this project.
0: Any idea when we might
2: see it? After the first of the year is when we will. This really depends on our fundraising. Uh, it is the film is going to be made. It's it's ninety percent made, but there's a lot of things that are adjunct to the film that most people don't un, that have never produced something uh, don't realize is that you have to have clearances and licenses to go forward. You have to get into festivals to promote this story, to get the film shown, and uh, all of it. Is part of a of a puzzle, and we have about 80 percent of the puzzle paid for. So, at the rate we've been going, I would say that we'll we'll see the film make it to the screen by summer. I have a feeling it could make it to the screen by summer, or at least into the festivals. Uh, we have the the most brilliant director we could possibly have is also uh, the writer of the of the film and he's become a best friend to all of us in the project and nobody by the way is taking any money on this and he's been working on this project for two years at no pay and that's the incredible Mark Saltarelli who is the award-winning uh, award-winning director for a film uh, called Andy Warhol and me two years ago um, but if you go Mark and just look at his body of work so many of us have seen his work uh, through short stories, whether it be on Logo TV or, or the other Gage channels. Um, he's he's a brilliant filmmaker and director, writer, and it, he's he's brought our story to life. And uh, he was also part of the story himself. We didn't all know each other at the time, but he was he was at the Studio One, a little bit behind our time, but he was still there. But he's he's uh, he's he's the one that's made the things that we envisioned come to life, and he's taken the he's taken the actual timeline of events from the archives, the USC one archives that are you know there are archives about Studio One in the back lot that are forever you know being held at uh, USC California, and he's taken all the other stories people and uh, he's found means he's found the uh, people to come up with the funding for most of this uh, he's he's just been uh, the best thing that happened to us but but uh, mark Salterelli uh, somebody else to take a close look at so I hope you're gonna I, be I
0: believe to... mark was the one that actually connected us um, okay. I, I, I reached out to him a while ago about mm-hmm. doing a segment and I'm sure at some point we will get around to that Yeah. Um, When his schedule allows for that to happen. And um, I'm also going to be interviewing Gary Mortimer. So, so we're going to have
2: bartender.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, thanks to you, I've got a great collection of uh, snapshots and some video clips to use that we'll throw into this, um, into the segment. So people can actually see some, you know, actual photographs and actual video of studio one. And uh, maybe understand the concept a little more.
2: There there's a there's a, a video clip in there that you can see. Uh was Gary, it was myself, Gary and the other Gary, it was our partner, where we were hosting one of the nights that Sandra Bernhard came in and, and I saw that. Yeah. Um uh, that's a good good uh I I put that one on there because that's a good one that shows us in action and it showed the club a bit and it showed the celebrity endorsement. But like she came in and did the show, you know, the the whole purpose behind them coming, by the way, was to lend their name to up and coming performers. And so when they came in and did a, a, a part of the evening with us, it was so their name could be used to attract audience to see new people on the stage. And that was the concept of it. Uh, but what I was going to say, you were going to ask about when is this going to be uh, available to see we're hoping if 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 the gods are good to us or the what do they call it, the finance gods are good to us, I think you'll see it uh, coming out sometime in the spring or summer. But hopefully, we'll be in all of the festivals for next year to give this to give this a fighting chance to really go down in history as a major documentary. I think that's going to happen. I really do. Well, I am um, very much looking forward advice. to that.
0: <laughs> I, I, I appreciate you both taking the time to talk to me about your experiences at Studio One, as well as for all the effort you've put into creating this documentary that, you know, I just can't wait to see. We should have documentaries like this of all of our favorite gay bars from all over the place, the streets and the Studio Ones and all those. And I'm really glad you've taken on the project and, and put so much effort into it.
2: Art, thank you. You've just nailed another... Gary, what do you think about this idea? I, I, you just said something I think needs to happen, is that a project that does show how how similar and how unique each and every one of them was. I mean, it would be great if... It, I mean, we're millions of people. We're, you know, the, just the gay people within the country. We're here, we're, we're queer, we're here to stay. But But I think today... America's ready to see that story, you know?
1: Well, and you asked me what I think. I think in typical Gary fashion, my first, my first response is poo-poo it. And my second response is, that's a good idea, Lloyd. And you'll <laughs> go ahead and do it. And I'll, and I'll work with you. Cause that's, that seems to be the pattern. <laughs> and,
2: and Art will very much need to be a part of that project.
1: <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Art, for your work.
2: Yeah, really, thank,
0: thank you. And, um, I can't wait to see the movie. So we'll have to keep our fingers crossed that everything goes as planned and and we can we'll see more to, of Studio One. You'll
2: have to come out for the premiere.
0: All right, then. I'll be shopping we'll for my red carpet outfit.
2: We'll make it happen. All right, thank you. Y'all have a great day. All right. All right. Thank, R- thank you very much. for everything.
0: That concludes another episode of the Gabe Archive Show. For more information about this episode or to find more episodes, Visit it game?